This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. So the General Assembly ended its regular session this year without agreeing on a state budget. The state has a big surplus, and both Democrats and Republicans want to pass some tax cuts. Think this would be a good thing, an easy thing to resolve. But you would be wrong. <laughs> There's a gap. In fact, it's a 2.8 billion dollar gap between what the Democratic Senate proposes and what the Republican House proposes. Democrats want to cut some taxes, but also use a lot of that money for public investments in transportation, schools, mental health, and so on. Republicans want to cut taxes far more, so much that it'll leave scant little funding for public services that the state has been deferring for a long time. The General Assembly reconvenes next week to try to hash all this out. So this week, Bold Dominion is focusing less on the right-this-moment details. Instead, we're stepping back and doing one of our explainer episodes. How does the sausage get made in Virginia? Who actually crafts the state budgets? And how do they do it? And what can we expect the state budget to look like for the next couple of years? I would say that um, there is an opportunity for advocacy at every stage of the budget process. And we try to make sure that we and also other organizations and members of the public have a chance to weigh in at each of those steps of the process. That's Laura Gorin at the Commonwealth Institute for Fiscal Analysis. But first, we turn to Ray Shapak. He's a professor of public policy at the Frank Batten School of Leadership at the University of Virginia. Earlier this week, he talked with Bold Dominion's Esther Erickson von Allman about how the state budget is structured, economic forecasting, and the entire legislative process of getting a priority into the budget. Virginia lawmakers are expected to return to Richmond uh, in early April for a special session. And there's currently a $2.8 billion difference between the House and state spending plans. Do you have any predictions about what kind of compromise will be reached? Not really. I mean, it seems to be the governor has uh, put a high priority on the tax cuts. So he's most interested in getting that. Um, I think the Democrats are trying to maintain some of the spending, particularly for education and so on. So, you know, it's, um, the Republicans have the governor and one house, so they're in a, probably a somewhat stronger position. Since compromise is, is inevitable in cases like these, which spending areas are most vulnerable to losing funding? Um, when spending cuts have to be made? And, and on the flip side, what aspects of the budget receive the most bipartisan support are, you know, safe from being cut? The first thing you got to remember is that there are essentially three major components of state budgets, including Virginia. One is you've got federal money, okay? And that's normally about a third of the entire budget. So that's pretty much a given. You can't cut that. You've got to spend it. Uh, pretty much as is. Some of that is entitlement, the Medicaid program, but a lot of it is so-called discretionary. And you've got a second component, which is what they call trust funds and dedicated revenues. So the highway uh, gasoline tax goes into a highway trust fund, and you can't spend it on anything else. And so you've got another 25% of the budget. Um, that is in those dedicated revenues, okay? So that limits your flexibility on that component of the budget as well. The third piece 
is the piece that comes from so-called general revenues. By general revenues, the state level, it's pretty much assumed to be income taxes and sales taxes. It's about 50% normally of, of the budget. That's where all the flexibility is, okay? And so, you know, the big programs there are elementary and secondary education and higher education, some transportation. So you've, you've almost got to set aside 50% of the budget because it's either federal or it's some kind of a dedicated revenues. So your flexibility is, is close to zero there. So all the emphasis will be on the other areas that's sort of paid for with broad taxes. It seems like the tax cuts that are sort of a main point of contention right now, those will likely affect other spending areas like education. Yeah, and it um, they generally like to maintain rainy day funds, too. In other words, the uh, budget's based on sort of underlying economic assumptions, and so now we're beginning to get concerned about uh, a recession. And so most states want to put sort of five to seven percent of their money in a rainy day fund so that if we go into a recession uh, they don't have to immediately start cutting they've got some sort of protection in it so that's another piece i'm not sure what they're doing on in that but i think given where we are now and the rising concern of our recession having even eight to ten percent of the money in the rainy day fund uh, makes a certain amount of sense. How do new priorities get added to the budget? Well, you got to remember that the budget is, you know, the governor and the budget office uh, sort of have a lot to say about it. And so that's a, a process done each year. Uh, it's done basically by the office of uh, budget office. And what they do is that the very first thing they do is to get uh, economic assumptions. So what is the economy going to look like? And so they do projections of the equivalent of GNP in the state, uh, personal income, wages and salaries, and those types of things. And so they put out those economic forecasts, and basically that's an input into your revenue forecast, Okay. And then the governor lays in his priorities, okay, into the budget. And normally they try to keep it relatively focused, maybe three to five issues where you may want more spending. And then they go through a process basically with all of the agencies. And it's an iterative process, normally about three rounds of it, where they ask agencies to make their best estimate of what spending would be. But it also provides choices for the budget office. In other words, it says, what would you cut if you had 2% less money? And what might you increase spending on if you had 2% more money? And so that is, is known as a passback. It's sort of the agencies giving information back to the, the budget office. And so what the budget office has to do is they've got to make sure that because there's a a balanced budget requirement for the state. And so that takes normally two or three iterations back and forth. And what they'll do is that they'll probably challenge some of the agency people to cut budgets and so on. 
And then they'll make sure that his priorities are incorporated in that. So based on that process, you'll come up with a budget. It doesn't take effect until the next fiscal year, which is July 1. Okay, so that leaves you that six-month period for adjustment. So then it goes basically to the House and Senate. Uh, most of it goes to the Appropriations Committee in the House and the so-called Finance and Appropriations Committee in the Senate. So if you're a member of one of those committees and you have a high priority, then you try to convince other members on the committee to sort of include it, okay? If you're, you know, an average member and you're not on one of those committees, uh, it, it's, it's going to be pretty hard to get it. I mean, you got to remember that you need to authorize a program first and then you mm -hmm. need to fund it. So you have to have a previous bill that had been adopted as an authorization. But then it's up to the appropriations committees to basically make decisions. So it's, you know, if you're a majority leader of your uh, committee chair, then you have a fair amount of power to sort of negotiate and get some of your things. But oddly enough, in states, the governor is, uh, is pretty powerful. They have more power than, for example, the president has vis-a-vis -vis the Congress. Once a bill is authorized, is it basically guaranteed funding or um, is it unlikely yeah, that it won't receive funding or does that happen all the time that bills will be authorized and then they just don't receive funding? Okay, so if it's an authorization which essentially is an entitlement program or another mandatory, so if they did an amendment on Medicaid per se, mm -hmm. that's automatically funded. So if you happen to increase the eligibility, then the money flows direct. In other words, if people meet the eligibility requirement, they automatically get the money. So whatever that committee is that does the authorization, it gets automatically funded. Pretty much everything else, you've got to have that authorization first. Many things are never funded, okay? And those that are funded may be funded at 10% of the level that the person who got the authorization done thought was necessary. It's one of the problems. They're, they go through different committees at different times. So that coordination is hard. But that's where you get into negotiation, you know. So you, you talked about these economic assumptions that the budget relies on um, in order to decide how much spending money there is. Are, how accurate are these assumptions typically? Most of these projections are done like on a five-year basis. Generally, the first six months to a year are often fairly good because there are certain leading indicators in the economy. So, for example, if I'm projecting housing, I would look at building permits. And so the building permits start going up now. We know that spending for housing is probably going to go up in six months. So there's a number of leading indicators that get you a better shot at a good forecast. But yeah, people are off often. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Virginia has a biennial budget system 
but so other states have annual ones. Does having a biennial versus an annual budgeting system, does that improve the accuracy of, of the economic assumptions? Yeah, I don't think it matters. I mean, you got to remember, e even though they're on a biennial, they update the economic projections and they do sort of amendments for appropriations in the off year. So they make adjustments in it. I think the big thing is most people, most budget efforts, experts believe it's a lot more efficient to do it once every two years, okay? Uh, and then it still allows you to come back and make those adjustments. But the budget processes in states and the federal government is extremely labor intensive, okay? Because you've got to allocate it to committees. The committees normally have hearings. And so if you're in a two-year type of thing, you concentrate it in, in one particular year. So I would argue it's a lot more efficient, and I think it's about half the states have a biennial and half sort of an annual. Um, there's been a big debate at the federal level um, because, as you probably know, they're always into continuing resolutions and, and other problems. But the members of the appropriations committees at the federal level have been unwilling to do it because basically they... They use it for uh, campaign financing. So I don't have any more questions, but is there anything I haven't asked about that you wanted to touch on? No, I mean, historically, Virginia has been, I would argue, a little more bipartisan, uh, actually, than uh, a number of other states. And they've been kind of a... Uh, because they are fiscally conservative, they worry about the bond rating particularly and things of that sort. So I think in some ways the state has had a pretty good reputation around budgets. They don't play a lot of games. Um, they tend to be conservative on the estimates. Um, so they've been given pretty high grades in terms of good government type of thing. Ray Shapak is a professor of public policy at the Frank Batten School of Leadership at the University of Virginia. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to get into state politics? Well, tell them about this show and then subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Hey, while you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. We like those. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history, music, and community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe to all of them over at virginiaaudio.org. I've heard it said before that budgets are moral documents. That is, where an organization, or in this case a commonwealth, spends its money, is a key reflection on what it prioritizes. Chris Wodica and Laura Gorin do policy analysis and research on tax policy at the Commonwealth Institute for Fiscal Analysis. They joined us this week to talk about how public policy groups can and do get involved in Virginia's budgeting process. To start off, could you tell us a bit about the work you do at the Commonwealth Institute? 
So the Commonwealth Institute is a statewide research and advocacy organization that works to improve the lives of low-income families and communities of color through um, advocacy and research and partnering with the folks who are most impacted by these policy decisions. So Virginia has a biennial budget system. So every two years, the governor introduces a proposed budget to the General Assembly. But other states have annual budgeting systems. And I was wondering, have you noticed that there might be certain benefits or drawbacks to having this biennial budget system as opposed to an annual one? There's, it's an interesting question. There's definitely trade-offs involved with the two-year budget cycle versus the one-year. One advantage of the two-year budget cycle is it allows policymakers to do a little bit more smoothing of ups and downs in revenue and expenditures across the two years and to um, think slightly longer term than just one year as they're doing their planning. A downside is it means that governors, um, we have one-term governors in the state, so it means that a governor comes in with a budget that was written by their predecessor, and then um, they get a chance to make amendments to that, of course, um, as part of the amendment and veto process. Um, But that budget um, then goes for two years with another chance to amend it um, after one year. Um, And then they introduce a new budget um, about halfway through their term, and that's the one that they sort of get to see to execution. Um, So that's sort of the trade-off is how it interacts with our one-term governor. And how early does the budgeting process start? Like with this new budget, when when are people beginning to work on it? Is it just constant? Well, the budget is, in a lot of ways, the most important policy document that the Virginia legislature deals with each year. So we we do work on it all the time. That said, if you sort of think about the cycle of budget development and budget creation, um, you start with um, over the summer with um, state agencies, um, outside advocates, other policymakers um, proposing ideas to the governor's office, and um, those get sort of taken into account and compiled. And in the fall, the governor's office puts out their proposed budget each December. Um, And then you have budget hearings in January where the public can speak on the proposed budget and priorities. Um, And then it goes through the legislative process in January, February, and now we're in March um, working on that process. Mm -hmm. So at what phase of the budgeting process do public policy advocacy institutions like TCI get involved? Um, I would say that um, there is an opportunity for advocacy at every stage of the budget process, and we try to make sure that we and also other organizations and members of the public have a chance to weigh in at each of those steps of the process. So that means participating in that early stage of gathering ideas, submitting them, weighing in with the governor's office, with the legislature, with the um, budget conferees, which is the step we are now where the House and Senate are making a deal between their different proposals, um, and then finally with the governor's amendment and veto process. And when you say weighing in, like weighing in on on the budgeting process, what what does that actually look like for advocacy institutions? For us, it certainly does include um, meeting with uh, the governor's office and with um, House and Senate budget writers. Um, But we also do other things, like we put out a budget comparison at each step of the process so that members of the public and media can better understand what's at stake between the different proposals. 
And we also, you know, work with community-based organizations and do presentations about the budget so that folks know what's going on. The budget right now seems to be at a bit of a standstill with there being gridlock between the, the Democratic majority Senate and then the Republican majority House of Delegates. And the main point of contention seems to be these tax cuts proposed by Governor Yunkin. Um, why are these tax cuts so controversial? So I think in part the tax proposals from the Yunkin administration and that were included in the House budget proposal are a big point of contention because they are just so large. And so as a result of those tax cuts being included in the House budget, it's one of the reasons why the two chambers are billions of dollars apart in terms of their two proposals. And I think some of the concern that has been voiced is just around what this means for the long-term budget situation for the Commonwealth, especially given the enormous outstanding needs in other parts of the budget, like K-12 education or healthcare or housing and other issues. And so some of the tax cut proponents will point to one-year revenue numbers that look positive, but because these tax cuts are ongoing, they would need to be accounted for in future budgets. And we don't know what's going to happen with the economy necessarily. There's still uncertainty with the pandemic, as well as with some of the things happening geopolitically, and then also whatever ends up happening in Washington, D.C. from Congress, which does have an outsized impact on Virginia. And so I think it is a little bit hasty to make billions of dollars in tax cuts that are ongoing based on short-term revenues that are ahead of projections. And especially given that there are so many needs, like for example, on K-12, there's still a lot of cuts that were made during the Great Recession, which is over a decade ago, that haven't been restored. And then there's also been proposals from the State Board of Education to fully fund the standards of quality. And so there are a lot of things just on education where we're not meeting our needs currently. And so I think that is definitely one of the things that is part of the conversation right now. And and how long into the future might these tax cuts affect state tax revenue? I, I think it varies by the proposal. So some of the things are one-time or short-term. So there are tax rebates that will be going out most likely. That's a one-time expense. But for some of the other things like reducing or eliminating the sales tax that applies to groceries, that would be permanent. And there is likely going to be some mechanism to replace some of that revenue, but it looks like for the part of that revenue source that goes to transportation, that that would not be replaced under the current proposals. Another one is around the recent proposal around the gas tax from the Yunkin administration. That would include a short-term suspension of the state gas tax, but it also would change how the gas tax rate would be calculated in the future. And so that would represent a permanent cut to that revenue source. So the Commonwealth Institute is involved in a lot of public policy advocacy around economic and racial justice. What are some of the legislative priorities that TCI is pushing for with this new budget? You know, the budget really is an important document in terms of our ability to invest in the future. 
we are at this moment in time where we have the opportunity to make generational investments in our public schools and reverse a lot of the harm that was created during the last recession, the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, when we made permanent um, damaging cuts to the way the states supports our public schools. So this is an opportunity this year to reverse that and get Virginia in a much better place in terms of supporting families and our students. In addition, we think it's an important opportunity to reverse some of the upside down nature of our tax system. So right now, Virginia's state and local tax system charges a higher rate in effect on the lowest income families because they pay more of their income towards many of the things that the state and local government taxes like property taxes and sales tax. One way that we can reverse this and put money in the pockets of low income families with children is making Virginia's earned income tax credit refundable, which would mean that everybody gets the full benefit that they've earned. And that, that's an important way of um, helping families right now and in the future while also making our tax system fairer. The third thing that we think is really important that we could do that at this time is making sure that families and parents fully benefit from the tax rebates by making sure that they scale with family size. Right now, it's only basically the adults in the family who would get a rebate, so we can make those tax rebates fair for families. I would just add to what Laura said about that, that for the tax rebates, as those are currently included in both proposals, a lot of families would not get a rebate because it is what's known as non-refundable. And so for a lot of families and individuals with low incomes, they would not get a rebate at all. And that's what we saw happen in 2019 when there was a similar one-time rebate that went out that year. And I believe there were over 1 million taxpayers in Virginia who did not receive a check as part of that. Generally speaking, would you currently characterize the Virginia tax system as fair? I think we have worked for a long time around the issue of tax fairness and tax justice in Virginia, especially given how outdated our tax system is here in the state. Our individual income tax rates were set in 1987. And so right now, the top income tax brackets begins in Virginia, just over $17,000 in taxable income. And so as a result of that, our tax code is essentially flat when it comes to the individual income tax. And most taxpayers in the state are in that top bracket. And then as a result of that, if someone is making, say, $30,000 a year versus someone who's making a million dollars a year, they're in the same tax bracket. On some of the other issues like corporate taxes, Virginia is one of a list of states that does not have a corporate tax reform on the books known as combined reporting. And there has been interest in recent years on enacting that in Virginia. But as of right now, that is not moving forward. And what that would do is prevent some of the accounting maneuvers and profit shifting that large multi-state corporations can engage in to minimize their tax liability. And a lot of states have gone in this direction and we're hoping that Virginia does soon at some point, but as of right now, that legislation is not moving forward. And so that is something that could help to reverse some of the trends we've seen in terms of the corporate income tax in the state. And then I think some of the other items we mentioned around sales taxes, grocery taxes, gas taxes that are all 
up for discussion. Those are regressive taxes, but I think the concern with some of the proposals right now is that because we're not replacing the revenue with anything, it does create a lot of budget pressures elsewhere if they're going to reduce or eliminate those and not have a plan to do anything to make up some of the shortfalls. I've actually never heard the term tax justice before, but it, it sounds like an interesting concept. What, what does tax justice look like to you? So I think it, it does involve what we value as a society and how we fund certain budget priorities and also what we ask of the wealthiest people in our state, as well as some of the most profitable corporations. And I think right now we are obviously not where we should be in terms of those things because our state income tax code at the individual level is essentially flat. A lot of corporations are able to minimize or completely zero out any state corporate taxes they owe. And then we also have a lot of challenges at the local level because we are a Dillon rule state. And so localities are really limited in what kinds of things they can do in terms of their own revenues. And so unlike some other places, local governments in Virginia can't have their own local income tax right now. They're really limited on what kind of property tax relief they can administer. And so I think the local tax situation is a big driver of the overall regressivity or upside down nature of the tax code. And some of that is because of restrictions placed on local governments by the state. Chris Wodica and Laura Gorin are with the Commonwealth Institute for Fiscal Analysis. Thanks to them and also to UVA professor Ray Shapak. Thanks also to our assistant producer, Esther Erickson von Allman, for conducting this week's interviews, and to Katherine Hansen for editing and producing this week's show. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.